about like three months into it, I go to my chairman and say, who is this woman who keeps coming up to me and telling <laughs> me to sign charts? Who, who is this? And he's like, oh, that, that's our physician assistant. Welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior serving professionals and providers with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. Alex, why are you starting a practice? You're insane. Okay, let's get started. Welcome, everybody. This is Alex Moseni. Welcome to Mastering Medicare. Uh, Today, we are in uh, late April 2020, and Amy and I are doing a special episode here. We're losing uh, our minds. Ah! <laughs> we're losing our minds. Yeah. So we're actually starting something kind of new, which is um, I've decided to start my own telemedicine medical practice uh, because I I see a certain opportunity that uh, I want to take advantage of and uh, use my expertise. And since I've been doing telemedicine for kind of other companies, both in a clinical and admin role for a number of years now. And uh, so anyways, um, what we're doing today is I've never built my own practice and Amy has. And so I have a lot of questions uh, on how to build my own practice. And so I'm going to be asking Amy for some help. (laughs) This is like a Q&A of like how to start a Medicare practice. Yeah, yeah. wanted to learn how to do it. This is going to be like 15 sessions of how to <laughs> just kidding. We're going to we're going to do this in like 4 minutes. It's so freaking easy. I don't know why we even like <laughs> thought this was going to be more than 10 minutes. Well, it's, it's actually kind of so tricky. Long. It's going to be so long. Yeah, no, it's actually kind of crazy. So, um so I guess the background here is that uh up until COVID-19, uh most Medicare patients could not get access to telemedicine um, uh, unless they were living in a uh, rural uh, area, meaning a non-metropolitan statistical area. So basically no, nowhere near any city, uh, they could not qualify for getting a telemedicine visit uh, paid for, which is kind of crazy. And obviously with the lockdowns throughout the country, uh, um, uh, that's not a viable uh rule. Uh, These seniors need access to care. And so uh, CMS and their infinite wisdom finally caught up with uh, the 21st century and said, okay, you you guys can now get telemedicine from your home and and we'll pay the doctors to do it. So in our uh, discussions with many kind of practices out there, we've realized that most primary care doctors have simply not been able to deploy a telemedicine solution. So a lot of these seniors feel abandoned right now and they're not able to get the care they need. So um, Amy and I were talking, I said, well, uh, I know how to deploy telemedicine. Why don't I just create my own practice? Yeah, no, I, and let me tell you why I thought this was a great idea. So the reason I thought this was a great idea is because most of the telemedicine sort of like on-demand type of platforms really are trying to take care of anybody from like one year old all the way to 101 years old. And there's sort of no expertise and they're plugging in people who are having to sort of straddle the, the age range. And I, 
was really excited when you said you were going to do this because I thought, oh my God, it's completely focused on this one group of people. And I think that's where there's no expertise right now. There's no expertise in someone saying, oh, I know how to take care of Medicare patients. I know what they can and cannot get. And it's it's like a super niche kind of telemed product that I had right. not I had not thought of because I mean, all these whatever doctor on demand and, you know, no, not there's anything wrong with them. It's just that they don't appeal to the population that that is clearly at the highest risk right now, which is they probably to the doctor or shouldn't go to the doctor, even if even if this all opens up. I mean, until there's a vaccination, I'm not really sure that seniors are necessarily supposed to leave their house to some degree, right? right. Like they're not going right. to want to leave the house. And a lot of the rules have opened up so that people have access to certain services, even if they're not homebound anymore, because the risk is so high. So like Medicare said, oh, you meet homebound criteria for home health, even if you're not actually homebound right now. So what I was excited about is that you said, all right, I'm going to do this for Medicare patients, telemed, I know how to do this, I can set this up. And it's was very appealing to me that we do this sort of like how Alex started a practice because it is kind of funny how hard and how challenging it might be to a start the practice and then figure out how to market it and figure out how to like develop a Nietzsche telemed product that could be for any state in America because you have a license in every state. Almost. Almost. <laughs> well, yeah. well, all right. Fine. I'll give you like a little bit of street cred. 45 or so. So, yeah, so, so basically I was really excited about this and I said, you know, we should really video this and we should really like talk about what it is to sort of right. it quickly, start right. a practice quickly. I mean, these rules only came out, what, like two, three weeks ago. And let's right. see how fast someone can create a new product and bring it to market and see what happens with that. And you're a real expert and I've sort of done the beginnings of starting a Medicare practice. So I figured let's do it. Yeah. And uh, so let me recap kind of what I've done thus far and uh, kind of the help I need from Amy. So um, I already had an LLC set up for- um, Which is a company. Basically LLC is a company. You started a company to do this. Yeah, and I had that with my EIN number and a bank account and- uh, What's an EIN number? Just for anybody who doesn't know. It's like your tax ID number. Yeah, it's your tax ID number. You go on the IRS website, you get it in five seconds. You just gotta make sure you save the the document they give you because it's imp- almost impossible to ever get it again um <laughs> but whatever so i had that already screen and you're like oh my god i gotta write this number down um but that's all i had i so what i did not have was i did not have uh, an emr i did not have uh, a billing process i did not have my enrollment in medicare set up properly for this um and so MedMal, uh, Med-Mal. yeah, MedMal. So each of these has been a really interesting challenge. And uh, so I have a lot of questions for Amy. So we're, we're going to go through some <laughs> no, of these I as I can answer them. Yeah. Oh, wait, I have questions before you start moving forward. I have some questions for you. Yeah. Number one is how did you figure out? Because I think this process is actually kind of fascinating. If if any pro- provider was out there and they were like, I just need to get medical malpractice insurance. I want to start a telemed practice. Like, how do you even start that process? So what did you do? So what I did was uh, just like buying a house uh, where you, you have to use agents. When you want med mal insurance, you got to use some sort of broker. Uh, you don't like 
yourself call Lloyd's of London, you know, and say, I would like to insure myself I would like to insure myself. against all telemedicine lawsuits. Thank right. you. Send me a quote for $10. Hey, okay, sir. <laughs> no, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, no, that's not happening. So you had to find an agent and right. we, a broker. We yeah. found an agent. We found yeah. Well, uh, I I asked Amy, who's your broker? And she told me, uh, Ron something, and he's been awesome. Yeah. And if you don't have one, you can always check with your local medical society. Uh, and yeah, uh, ding. Ding. <laughs> Thanks, MedKai. We paid our dues this year. <laughs> yeah, big shout out to MedKai. Yeah, shout out to um, MedKai. So, so actually, this has been super painful, uh, and it's not Ron's fault. Ron is an awesome guy, uh, but getting MedMal insurance requires you to fill out these uh, forms that uh, look like they've been rescanned a hundred times over the last millennia, and. <laughs> Uh, they ask your name over and over again. Well, what not just you went to over not just that, but like it, the minutiae of what they ask. You know, uh, did your grandmother Eve ever bake beef stroganoff? Or like <laughs> it, 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 they want every single detail of anything you've ever done. Uh, and uh, it's really painful because it's on these crappy forms, and then each of the different companies does it in their own way uh and it was it, it's been uh it's it's just for for anybody who's kind of a younger person used to streamlined user interfaces it's just a horrible experience it's absolutely horrible and actually during this process <laughs> i i went back to the broker and i said you got to be kidding me i mean this is like a 50 page application and asking the same stuff i've already said over and over and there's no database for half the stuff that's been asked yeah, has nobody come up with a better way? I, I almost abandoned the medical practice and said, let me just fix this problem of applying for <laughs> medical. Because this is. You're like, I got to fix every problem along the way. Because we know you have like literally visceral pain. But wait, I think it's important that everyone understands what the med mal sort of like ecosystem sort of looks like. Yeah. So there's tons of these companies out there that insure physicians. Some of them are big national companies. Well, there's not that many, but there's a lot of national companies. And then there's like state-based companies. Like in our state, we have a company that insures, let's say, you know, you and I used to work for the same emergency medicine practice, insures the emergency medicine practice right. groups in the state. And then the, they also insure OBGYNs, but they have a real penchant for brick and mortar types of practices and this idea that there's going to be, hey, I have like a unique practice. All I want to do is telemed. It, it sort of forces you into the national marketplace, which is why you really need a broker because they know all the big national companies, but each of those national companies have their own application process. Yeah. It's not like a central, it's not like applying to college where it's like one application and then you just sort of like shoot it off into the world. Right. You have to literally ask each single company, hey, listen, this is what I want to do. And this is also so new. So it's kind of hard for the what are those people called who like evaluate insurance, you know, all the claims, yeah, and what, yeah. whatever, whatever those people are called, those mathematician type people, they probably don't really know how to ascribe a risk to something like this yeah. because there's no historical data really. Yeah. 
So yeah, if, if you don't fit neatly into their box. Neatly. I mean, when I started my house calls practice, this is exactly the same thing. They were like, house calls? Like, we don't even, like, there wasn't even a question on the med mouth thing. Right. And the funny thing, they're like, oh, so you're a home health agency. No, no. I am not a Medicare home health agency. I am a physician practice trying to do house calls, which is totally different. And actually, the the thing that I learned really at the beginning was that the local carrier, the local insurance carrier that covers like emergency medicine practice, internal medicine, and all the typical ologists who are out there in the world in medic in Maryland would not insure me. Yeah. They were like, we we don't even understand what you do. We can't figure it out. And you're not brick and mortar and see you later. So I did have to go out into the national market, which did force me to have to fill out form after form after form, get a bunch of quotes. And and they were disparate, like, oh, $8,000 for the year, all the way up to $30,000 yeah. for the year. And that's a teaser rate. And then the next year it goes up by, you know, it doubles. So that you have these intro rates because the way that medical malpractice looks at you is that, you know, you don't get many patients in that first year. So they're not really insuring you for that much in that first year. But then because most med mal insurance policies do a, well, you can sue somebody up until three years, 72 months, right? Like you have 72 months to sue a doctor unless it's- Depending on the state, but yeah. yeah depending on the state. So, you know, you want somebody that's going to be able to say, all right, so each increasing year up until you're full, you don't have a mature policy. So it seems like a teaser rate. And then each year it gets more and more. And then you have to say to yourself, oh my God, do I even want to start this practice, right? Because right. if I hate it and I don't want to do this, you still have to pay the tail, which is usually one and a half times the maximum amount that you paid in any given year. So that if you, yeah. like if your worst case scenario, you know, at your most mature rate, you were paying, let's say, you know, $30,000 a year as because you had a mature policy, you're going to pay $45,000 to just get out of that. Like the, oh yeah. my God, I made a mistake and started this dumb practice. I don't even like it anymore, but you were paying $30,000 a year in your med mal insurance. You're suddenly now going to have to pay $45,000 just to get out of it. And to, well, the, to that's the big fail. risk here. That is the because big risk. That is your, I actually think that is probably your biggest financial risk here because yeah. the cost of getting an EMR and paying the billing company and you don't even have a brick and mortar because you're doing telemed, you know, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't, you don't even think about the med mal insurance in terms of getting out of it. Like it's easy to shut down a business, right? Yeah. Like, oh, great. Off, you know, shut down my website, shut down my EMR, shut down any vendors that I had relationships with. This is the priciest vendor that you're going to have a relationship with. And the real risk here is that, um, you know, Medicare is only allowing this to happen as a temporary rule change. Oh, and yeah. it could be that in three months and six months, it's they the say we're snapping practice. back. Yeah, and um, and the this whole the thing risk. could. Yeah, you're that's just like the risk. full at risk for the med mouth. This is your biggest yeah. financial risk. Have you gotten any quotes back yet? No, I submitted all the paperwork. Uh, I think it was two or three days ago, and uh, uh, obviously it takes them a little while to to figure this all out. Socialize the application and <laughs> get the get the actuaries to pull out their pencils. <laughs> yeah. Where's my envelope? Yeah. <laughs> how, much, how much risk is Alex? Yeah, yeah. So that'll be interesting to find out, and we'll keep the we'll keep our listeners, you know, up to date on that. So you've got your MedMal, okay? So you've got your MedMal apps out, so that's exciting. And then yeah. what with your Medicare? Remind me, we were talking about like, you're just one guy. Are you are you a biz? Are you like a practice? Yeah. So here's the complexity, the, right? So. So, you have to be 
enrolled in the the Medicare Mac where you want to practice, right? The Mac is the company that represents where we are, yeah. but it could be Palmetto, it could be CGS, right. it could be all these other different companies that sort of like own the regions of of the United States that sort of manage the Part B application and payment process right. for Medicare. They're private entities that sort of manage kind of like a private insurance. They just sort of manage the right. whole enrollment and payment and stuff for Medicare. So we're in, yeah. we're Novitas, where we right. sit. Yeah. So I, I, I reached out to Novitas because it, it what I, what was actually difficult to understand is, you know, there's actually three or at least three different kind of entities here. There's me as an individual physician, right? right. There's my NPI number as an individual, which follows you around for your whole like medical life career. Right. Yeah. Then there's the LLC, the company, right? Yeah, and right. They, that itself has an MPI number, which I had to get. And yeah. that was tricky because what they're used to doing is giving you either an individual NPI or an organizational NPI. But when you try to get an organizational NPI, they specifically ask you, is this a sole proprietorship? And so what do you answer there? Because from the perspective of, Yes, it's a sole proprietorship in that I am the sole individual who owns it. But you have but, an LLC. But it's an LLC where I'm going to have other uh, employee providers working underneath of it. So what do you actually mean by that question? That was very frustrating to work through with right. them. And because the, the NPPES who runs the NPI thing, their purpose with the NPI is might be a little bit different from what Novitas and Medicare mean by an organization. Oh, and, yeah. and if you became an S corp, cause some people take their LLC and turn it into an S corp. And then you're like, wait, am I a corporation? Am I an LLC? Am I a sole proprietor? Yeah. Yeah, so like, it's, yeah, it becomes so, a question sort of. Yeah, so I I got an organizational NPI even though I'm the sole owner because I think that's what they intend me to do. And I called Novitas and I ran it through them and uh, they uh, they seemed to agree with me. And then um, uh, then it was a question of okay, I now I need do I need to get do I need to enroll the LLC itself uh, with the um, with Novitas, you know, my Mac, uh, or or is it actually just uh, editing my current? And the answer that I got from them was actually surprising. They said, no, don't enroll your LLC separately. Uh, just add it to your own individual enrollment. And that's, that is not what I expected. I hope the lady I spoke to knows what she's talking about. Call back again. <laughs> yeah. Get a different answer. But that is the problem with some of these you know, everybody does, it's all, yeah, it's all about how they were educated and trained sometimes. I mean, right. I, like the worst case scenario, I think you can move stuff around. I, I think you can just rejigger stuff, even if it isn't done the right thing, because you go into this process called development, and then your development person is usually a really good person. So like, if you do end up sending in the application and you're like, I just didn't even understand what you were asking for, because sometimes yeah. they ask for old information that you right. may not have access to, and you just sort of like, all right, well, maybe I just won't put anything in like section 4B and see what yeah. happens. If you go into development, they will then say, listen, this is what we need, this is what we need, this is what we yeah. need. And it, it may delay it, but Alex, what what did you learn? Are you able to, even though you haven't gone into development or haven't gotten approved by Medicare, could you start seeing patients 
today. Well, that's my understanding that I can start seeing patients today. And then once they, let's say they approve, then uh, they can retroactively essentially nice. apply. But um, I guess the underlying issue that we haven't explicitized is that, um, you know, when you have employee providers working underneath of you, underneath of your organization, um, you have to route their encounters kind of through that organization so that Medicare knows you. Yeah, yeah. through the umbrella organization. Yeah. That, okay. So that the Medicare knows that, okay, you guys are operating as one practice so that, you know, because um, there's certain codes that it matters. Like if I try to bill something for a patient whom one of my employee colleagues saw already um, be linked because now it's an established patient of the practice, right? So right. you're trying to basically make these connections between the different providers and the organization. Uh, and it, sh it really shouldn't be that hard, but they've made it really confusing, you know? And, yeah. And, and the Medicare numbers are so, make no, like, it's just, it seems like someone just took an alphabet soup and just went, Bleh! that's your yeah. Medicare number. And then somebody else gets a, Bleh! they, they don't really make sense. So basically just to summarize, if you start a practice and you decide, okay, I am like, not just me, but I'm a company, anybody that comes to work for you has to they use their own NPI number, but it gets linked back to your yeah. Medicare number. And that is, you know, you just have to make sure because I actually had this happen um, where I've employed people who worked for other companies right. and it was found out later somehow Medicare was sending like Washington Hospital Center all their stuff and we couldn't reconcile. We're like, where's the payments? Right. And, you know, you would call Medicare like we paid and you're like, Actually, it was the secondary payments that got screwed up, but mm. that's a whole other problem, is that the secondary payments, somehow that didn't get coordinated within Medicare, and they were sending all the secondaries to another employer yeah. that they also worked for. So you got to kind of you know, keep your eye on that ball, because if you don't get any secondary payments from some of the stuff, you have to kind of chase that down a little bit, because right. that's fun. There's nothing more fun than chasing down money. Especially small dollar amounts that are not worth your time. I know, right? like twelve dollars and fifty cents. Uh, and it's not. But like, if you don't, but if you don't solve it, then the aggregate value of that is huge, right? Correct. And I believe the aggregate value of one of these was a, this mistake. Just it was pervasive, and it was in the six digits. So yeah, yeah. 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 So, but I will say I was pleasantly surprised that I was even able to get a human being uh, from Novitas uh, to actually spend, you know, 15 minutes trying to work through my situation and understand it and give me advice. I just hope the advice is right. <laughs> I, yeah, no. And I will tell you um, my experience also with Medicare, and this is just a shout out to CMS, woo, that on the enrollment side, very helpful. They do want, I mean, I think this is yeah. an improved system, but even, you know, when I was first starting off and I had to recreate it over the years for lots of different reasons, you know, I had one name and I had a, had a partner and then I, then I didn't have that partner and then I had to switch the and you know, then I just sort of recreate everything. So I went through this process several times and I was also very pleasantly surprised at how very helpful people were. Yeah. So I want to, you know, I don't want to bad mouth the people. It, the, it's just the system is sort of screwed up and it's unnecessarily complexified. Right. Yeah. Right. So then we got so we got your med mal. Now we've got your and med I, I will say I was also pleasantly supplied that I could surprised that I could submit my application hundred percent online. That was nice. 
I mean, that's more advanced than the MedMouse side. The MedMouse side still had me doing stupid PDFs that were not actual online forms. Like, <laughs> come on, man. You know, it, 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 pay somebody 200 bucks and convert your application into an online form. It's really not, I mean, it's, it's come on. It, it's bananas. But wait, I want to take an Alex moment. I want to summarize all the random things you need. So first you needed to make an LLC, which you yeah. got a tax ID number. Then you had Bank to- Bank account. Bank, bank account because you need that for your Medicare form because they yeah. want to do all electronic transfers. Then you had to get a an NPI number. Right. And then you have for the to, organization. For the organization. Yeah. And then you have to get med mal insurance. And yeah. then you have to apply to Medicare and you're going to get Medicare ID number on top of your NPI number right. for your organization. And a separate NPI number for you as an individual that links you to your own organization. And then anybody who comes below you will then also have to, with their own NPI number, get their own Medicare number that links them to your new organizational right. NPI and Medicare number. Now, since I only added my organization to my individual one, I'm this is where I'm a little like I'm a little unsure if did I got the right advice. 55B or an eight, you did an 855I. Yeah, not an yeah. 855. Okay, yeah, I think that's the way it is. I think you do, and did you do an R too? Because the R then yep. links. Yeah, so you do an I and yep. an R as an individual sole proprietor LLC. Right. Still do an I with an R as opposed to a B, which is right. like multiple owners right. and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I hope that's right. But it was just an, it was an amendment to the 855 I already had. Right. Right. Because yeah. I already had, I pre in my, my. Listen, you're gonna know when it works when the money flows. Right. So <laughs> You'll we'll know see. successful when you see your first like eighty-five dollars get <laughs> ding, you know, into your bank account. You'll be like success. Yeah. So okay, so now you've gotten that, and so this process has taken. I mean, you're. We have a habit of being like, all right, we've got a pro forma, we have a business idea, let's start the business in twenty-four hours. So it's been what, yeah. like four days? Yeah. Yeah. For real. Yeah. No, for real. For real. That's yeah. the funny thing. That's why I was like, oh my God, let's stop for a second. Don't do anything else until we start our podcast. Cause knowing us, you'll have started your practice and it'll be fully formed and like bringing in revenue in like seven days. So I let's hope just so. yeah. slow it down. All right. So the rapid pivot has happened. Okay. So you've got your Medicare. You've got, all right. So now all of those are cooking. And now I guess it's the EMR. Um, which, so I was under the impression that, well, let's step back for a second. First of all, I am a true believer that getting the right tool for the job, even if it's more expensive, uh, pays dividends in a massive way later on. So I spent quite a bit of time kind of talking to a bunch of people and researching, trying to figure out what would be the best EMR for what I want to do? And I know Amy had a lot of experience with Dr. Crono. Um, and I personally I have, love, by the way, and I, I personally have used eClinical Works. Uh, uh, no comment there. Um, and okay, just gonna blow up. Thanks. In our remote patient monitoring uh, work, we've noticed that the practices who use Athena Health generally uh, are just much more successful practices than uh, those using ECW or almost any other practice. 
And um, I did look at Practice Fusion, and although it seems like you can just be up and running with them quickly, it seemed like their their revenue cycle portion you you have to find somebody to connect to it, and um, it it looked like pe- the main feedback I could see from people was that it's a fine solution for the very beginning, but as your needs grow and you get things get more complicated, it's just not good enough and. It's free though, right? I mean, that's it's, the thing with Practice Fusion is like if you if you were to say, oh, that portion yeah. of expenses I don't really want to incur at the beginning. Yeah. Although, but as a single provider, it's like give the range. I mean, it's like all the 150 to 300 bucks per month. Yeah. That's nothing. It's that's nothing. Like free. Right. I mean, that might as well be free to some degree. Right. And I even saw a few kind of new, more modern ones that looked really good, but they were kind of more focused on the, like the therapy behavioral health space. Uh, right. There was a really good one. I think it was called Simple Practice or something like that. Beautiful uh, tool, but not really designed for what I wanted to do. And so, um, so just quickly, I'm sorry, but how did, how did Athena health and any of the choices that you were making have anything to do with the fact that you want to do telemed? I mean, did you look at how they, yeah. So Athena, like how did you, like, how did that come up? So some of these like ECW and others have their own telemedicine module. Yeah. Uh, Whereas others like Athena, they have a, they have an app marketplace where you can just add on these modules. Right. And. I, I really like that Athena allows that and basically wants to play ball with all these other vendors where some EMR vendors, uh, the biggest one, which shall not be named uh, for fear <laughs> of lawsuit, uh, it, it really doesn't make it easy at all for. Um, uh, so is uh, these APIs, or are they all connected by API? I'm so yeah, savvy. Like what uh, yeah, yeah. I, I presume they're using some sort of APIs to connect to. But so anyways, I reached out to Athena and said, you know, let me learn more about how you guys do it. And, uh, you know, it's rare that during a demo, I actually get impressed. Uh, Mm. And they had a bunch of features that I had not really thought about. And assuming it's true, um, would be of great value. Like they've already integrated with many of the local health systems and 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 um, CRISP, our local HIE, so that if as long as the patients registered the right way, like all their recent discharge summaries and results and stuff. Right in. And so for my population, if it's a Medicare, more, you know, more elderly population, having that information automatically flow in, that's worth so much to me. You know, you don't have to go out there and start. I mean, it's almost like their past medical history auto fills in. Yeah. Which that's is huge. That's which is huge. actually the goal for every provider, no matter where you are. Like if you were sitting in an emergency department, let me yeah. ask a question, because I haven't sat in an emergency department for a really long time. But do some of the do Cerner and the big, big ones that are all out there, do they automatically pull in crisp data? Or are you still going to the United Landing page and having it, to futz about? Okay. Yeah, it depends. Uh, some of that data, I've seen it even with Meditech, they're able to pull in some stuff. But somebody's got to build the connection, and uh, you know, God bless Crisp. I love the folks, but oh, yeah, things, totally. yeah. But it, but it, crisp. but it's, but it's, it's slow working with them sometimes, you know. Um, so, um, so, anyways, that was really awesome. And uh, you know, what I'm trying, one of the things I'm trying to do here 
that I haven't said to you is to see, can a solo doc like myself set up such a streamlined practice that I don't need an army of office people? Can I even reach the, the pinnacle, which would be not to have a single ancillary staff person? You know, can the EMR and, right? Because it, when I go to my friend's offices, uh, uh, oh my gosh, it's a disaster. You know, yeah, one like, or two an providers. Army of people, and they have an army of people. Army of people. Just bull honky, you know? Well, the reason they exist is because the tools that the practice are use, is using are uh, suck. Well, right? they also try to take a brick and mortar practice that was totally yeah. paper based and transform it while they're moving at the speed of light. Right. right. Like, like offices, in order to just stay afloat, they might have a 50 or 55 percent overhead just right. for just oh, easily. And and then so for them to transform, right. it's almost too hard. Like you almost want to just wipe the slate clean yeah. and just start. it's like cleaning out a closet. But nobody can afford to do that. Right. I mean, I think a really interesting, you know, like when you watch practices that were brick and mortar, that are brick and mortar and that had this whole process and they kind of get adopted into, let's say like a Privia or something like that, that process, Privia does help so much with that because they, they know how to transform. But a, yeah. a small practice has no ability to do that because right. how is the doctor supposed to be seeing patients, um, billing and coding, you know, scheduling and having all this stuff. And then at the same time be like, Oh yeah, we're just gonna just totally transform the way that we practice medicine. Yeah. Not only just from like, oh, maybe we'll think about like how much we're gonna save the system and keep people out of the ER, like not that type of transformation, but literally a day-to-day -day systems perspective. Yeah. It's impossible. So the neat thing is to watch somebody try and start this from scratch because right. also the evolution of technology and 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 even just Medicare rules and laws is can change how you start from scratch almost every day uniquely right. at this point. Like what happened yesterday is like, maybe there's going to be a new CMS guidelines about how to do X, Y, and Z today. Right. I mean, it's, so yeah, so this is actually interesting. We'll see if you can yeah. manage to do that. You're it's, the guy to do it, Alex, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 I'm just fascinated. Like, can I pull that off? So the one other thing that I thought was really interesting. So when I first started my practice, I thought to myself, why do we have to document with, typing every single thing why can't a the telemedicine experience be recorded and stand right. alone as the as the sort of the documentation right. of the visit itself like could you right. just um take the visit transcribe it and be like all right i'm done this is my documentation what i said is my documentation yeah. And well, that that is essentially what we do at SiriusMD, but um, our conversations are text-based. But it, it now we're in a lucky position there because we're not doing fee-for-service telemedicine, right? We're just we we have right. our own special contracts. contracts with the payers where we're not billing individual encounters, so we don't have to meet the five HPI and, oh, and all know, the eight review of systems. And, yeah. billing, right. You know, documentation guidelines, ninety-five, yeah. ninety-seven, or whatever. Yeah. But I, I, uh, but I love the question because it, it, it goes to the root of the matter of, um, you know, why do we even document? Why you know? do we document? I'll tell you what was the thing that kind of got me excited about this. 
so many years ago and I miss the idea of them is the Google glasses. So the funny thing was, is that Dr. Chrono, when I first signed up with them, was an early, had an early API with Google glasses so that you would be wearing them and videoing the, whatever you did with that patient. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but then I, I had this weird recollection that maybe there was like some in the sky person that was like transcribing what I said at the physical exam, plus the video of it. And that was sort of going to create the medical record. Yeah. But this whole, like having to write things down is so 1983. Like it's painful. If you could just say like, we could just use Descript on every one of your uh, encounters and just be like, save bill and and by the way i think if i mean i'm not going to say this because who knows but like if you got audited the information's there right right like if you were smart enough to say out loud i see uh blah 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 you know on the you know medial portion of their left ankle there's a one by you know if you are super descriptive yeah it could just be the medical record yeah well and there is the the uh uh, like the Amazon Mechanical Turk version of this, which is yeah. that these scribe companies have evolved to allow a remote scribe to basically listen in or watch your conversation and and document real time. Are they working uh, in the COVID era? Are uh, Turks out there? I can't. Uh, why not? Well, think I don't of know. places where those would be happening. Yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of the people have those technology in their home. Yeah. They probably have to go to a place. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Um, I haven't explored that, but but that 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 would be an interesting thing. But yeah. you know, ultimately, what I liked about Athena, even though it's more expensive, it's more expensive in the right way, which is you know, Athena's model is they take a percent of your collections, um, and that makes sense to me because then the incentives are aligned. Um, they as make opposed, more money as opposed, to, as opposed to just a flat monthly flat. rate. Yeah. Right. Okay, uh, I mean, I, I love flat rates, um, uh, but in an art, you know, what I've learned in all the revenue cycle work that I've done is that the amount you get out is directly proportional to what you put into it. Um, it, it and so you have to be incentivized to do more work as a revenue cycle management company. Otherwise, you're you're just going to do the minimal acceptable amount, right? So right. so um, and so like so if there is a twenty dollar claim uh, or delta that that needs to be worked, is the revenue cycle team incentivized to work it? Uh, they might not be if they're just getting a flat payment, you know. Uh, but if they're getting you know let's say six percent, uh, it might be worth it to them, you know. So so uh, I always like the vendor's incentives to be aligned completely or as completely as possible with the client. And um, let me me ask a question. So it's a percentage of collections, not a percentage of billables. So, right. Like that is always kind of, I believe so. That's my understanding. So that's important to understand. There's, there are, there are ways that you can get it yourself into a little bit of a pickle, right? Absolutely. You, we actually know on the RPM side that if we, take up somebody and they start doing RPM, the vendor for RPM is going to bill them as a percentage of allowables, right? as a percentage of collections. So, well, well, I'm not even sure it's percent, like 
with AccuHealth, it's just oh, a flat already, rate. Yeah. Right, the flat rate. But it doesn't yeah. matter if the provider right. is able to collect that money. You still right. got to pay your bills. Right. So that is a very different model on yeah. the RCM side that yeah. I kind of find to be more pleasant because it puts everybody at risk. Yep. Yep. And so um, I really like that. And there were a few other things that really stood out. Um, but the one thing that I was really surprised by and I don't like about Athena. Uh, oh, maybe they'll change it today. Well, no, I mean, is that they're telling me, you know, it takes a month or two to get set up. And that makes no because, sense. They, well, I think it's because they manage all the revenue cycle. They got to set up the bank account that they have access yeah, to. Why and all can't of, you just start seeing patients right now? I know. Start documenting. I know. Believe me, I have. Uh, I have heckled them and 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 harassed them as much as I feel as much as I can to say like, dude, I like I, I am somebody with almost your salad later. <laughs> I have zero patients, uh, and so I'm I, I'm working with them to try to get this up and running as fast as possible. But um, so that's a bottleneck for that, you. Yeah. So so what I've decided to do is um, to start to build my own little minimal viable product, uh, solution until we can get, um, uh, Athena set up and, you know, given the current relaxation of rules, I can basically Skype with the seniors, just document in some HIPAA compliant, um, you know, uh, solution. Whatever yeah. internal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yourself. Right. And then once Athena is live, then I can just manually transfer over in a number of ways uh, and then bill. So my my billing is going to get delayed, but I'm OK with that. Um, yeah. I So anyways, that that's the, the current plan. But right. where. Keep going. OK. Uh, anything else on the EMR? Do you have any questions on the EMR yeah, side? So you didn't make a decision for the EMR based on a built in telemed solution. So that's so that's well, what trying well, to figure well, out. OK, so. He, w the most important thing for me on the telemedicine, on the, like the video component, is what is the patient experience? Because if the experience oh is not easy, this for a long time. Let's talk yeah. about wow. Yeah. If the experience is not easy, you're simply not going to get the engagement you need. And so I actually spent a lot of time with them going through the different uh, telemedicine. Uh, solutions that plug into them, including Doxy and Chiron. And those are the two that that I like the most. And it was super important to me that to whatever degree possible, patients not need to manage logins and passwords and that sort of stuff in order because to do the their business. population you're also going to be dealing with. And, and Alex, yeah. you and I are obsessed with user experience like yes the user experience because the user experience is not just your experience it's their yeah. experience and i have of recent been involved with a rollout of an of uh something that had a like a 90 percent fail rate because the end user whether they be a cna at a nursing home at an assisted living or the patient or the patient's yeah. representative if that in and of itself is poor you're going to end up yeah. falling on FaceTime. Like you end yeah. up like reverting back to just like the easiest possible thing, which is legal yeah. today, but not necessarily in a, in a really useful way. And just thinking back to, you know, my experience in the telemedicine world is, you know, I was involved with that study where we actually had to send out a telepresenter, yeah. like an actual human being to like 
set up the equipment or set up the even yeah. the life. I mean, any part of that that has friction is going to just bomb your practice because if yeah. you if that that's that's the only way that you're going to succeed is if you can get into their into their world. Yeah. And so um, I liked what I saw uh, with the, you know, like Doxy, Doxy.me. Yeah. Um, they have a way for patients to access without needing to put in the login. You know, there's there's pros and cons to it because you want to make sure you know who this person is. It's verified. It's them. Get their insurance info and all that. Yet you still also want to just have the encounter. And the other thing that was important to me was to make sure that people can self-schedule um, uh, their encounters. And so that is actually pretty well done through Athena and Chiron. They're, they have a whole system where where people can self-schedule. So uh, I haven't decided whether I'm going to use the Chiron Doxy. or Doxy Chiron. or something else. So more to be tested out there. Um, uh, or do we just do like FaceTime, FaceTime for now, world, right, and just document it, Athena. So yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. Okay, so that's actually interesting. But the thing that you just brought up, which we can talk about the telemed solution issue forever and ever, but just quickly, as part of starting a new practice, and if you're a senior or somebody who has Medicare, you, Alex, in your new practice have to make sure it's a Medicare product that you accept because you're only going to be accepting original that's right. Medicare. So it can't just be anybody. You have to then have a separate system at this point, because you're not going to have your EMR, which could do insurance checking, but you now have to find another way to make sure that they even have the insurance that you accept, which is right. yet another step, which could, which sort of delays. It's a friction point. Hi, hang on a second. What's your Medicare number? I got to look you up yeah. to make sure we accept your insurance. It's not, it doesn't feel seamless. And obviously this patient population, you're not going to be like type in your Medicare number, you know, yeah. like you might have to make that part of your visit to yeah. kind of it's just going to have to be part of the experience of the visit. Yeah, or, so that is actually one of my questions. Do How does one know if a patient is original Medicare or Medicare Advantage or even has Medicare, period? Okay, so you have to, there's, there's a couple of ways. Medicare allows you on a patient, okay, unless you have a whole other system set up. Medicare allows you to call in or log in to check people one by one. And it's, you can do this uh, through this, what website? Do you Correct. There is a way to do it. You have to, of course, there's another login and password that yeah. you have to set this up. And I don't know if you can do it on a weekend, but there are companies out there. Wait, wait, why would you not be able to do it on a weekend? I don't know. <laughs> there must be some, some like, bureaucratic random, BS rule. I don't know why I would say that, but like, I sort of feel like there may be a phone call involved, but yeah. it, assuming that you also now do not yet have your Medicare ID number, yeah. like, I don't know if you could do that, but there's, there's third party companies that have, you know, they can look inside the system and grab that information. They can grab a lot of information, actually, right. because Medicare, um, I think it's called the HETS system, the HET system or whatever it is. It's it's there's a certain number of fields that you can pull out of Medicare for every single patient. It's not always the information that you need or want, but right. it is a certain limited number of information, uh, like data points. They include what type of Medicare they have, the, the, um, if they have a secondary payer that's been coordinated, you'll find out that information. You can find Wait, out if it, yeah. So you, you could have a secondary insurance that's not coordinated? Correct. What, if you, right. Why? How? 
Because when you sign up as a patient, if you sign up for Medicare and you don't coordinate your benefits, meaning like if you don't tell Medicare that you have a secondary insurer, Medicare will never look to that secondary insurance company to grab their secondary payment. And so you end up only getting paid the 80%. And then the, the patient is sitting here going, why are you billing me? Why are you billing me for that other 20%? But it's really on them. They didn't coordinate their benefits to tell Medicare, oh, look to United, look to Care First, look to whoever. Um, it's just like one of those phenomenons of non-coordinated benefits. It, it's on the patient to call Medicare and yeah. that. So that's actually a process that you have very little control over. And in the re- revenue cycle management, like in when I first started my practice, this was a thing. Like my biller would be like, oh, well, you know, you didn't get the 20%, which in some cases is 40, 50 bucks, depending upon all the stuff right. that might happen. You're not collecting that. That's not insignificant. And he would then call the patient for me and they'd say, oh, but I have United. And they'd say, he'd say, but Medicare doesn't know you have United. And because you, Alex, do not have to individually, um, you don't have to participate with Care First or Blue Cross or United or Aetna or whatever. Yeah. For, as there are private insurance companies. Medicare has said, if you are a Medicare provider, you do not then also have to participate in the private insurance market. You don't have to be in that market to get the secondary payment. So even though you're only a Medicare provider. Uh, keep going. <laughs> even though you're only a Medicare provider, it doesn't really affect uh, your ability to collect the secondaries, even though even though they're obviously going to be in the private insurance space. So if the patient doesn't coordinate their benefits, you, you don't, you're never going to collect it. So as part of your RCM, you're going to continue to look for those deltas of who's missing that extra secondary insurance. And then you may have to somehow like create some system if you want to be fully automated, you know, where you can have a email go out to maybe a representative. Although in our patient, that patient population, it's sort of hard to know if they're even going to respond, that may be like those warm touches outside of your self-closed bubble that you want to create that may interfere with that, where you have to say, hey, listen, I don't want to bill you the 40 bucks because I know you have a secondary. So that's that's one thing I need to um, explore with Athena, because I know they have some sort of eligibility check that you can do at the beginning. So that's what, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but in addition to the information that comes out about your, you know, what they're, whether or not they're in original Part B or a Medicare Advantage plan, whether or not they have a secondary insurance that's been coordinated, are in, is information like this. You can find out if they have accessed in the past or currently are in a Medicare Part A home health program, whether they are currently involved in hospice, whether they have had um, a lot of those preventive health codes are all sort of built into that. So you're going to find out when their last annual wellness visit was billed. and, And it should be pretty real time. But of course, this is very important. Most of the Medicare Part B, at least on the Part B side, I, I don't know about Part A, but on the Part B side, you have 364 days as a provider to submit your bill, which means you could have done this um, annual wellness visit, let's just say, and this is what's crazy, you may have done the annual wellness visit 364 days ago and still submit it today and get paid for it. Mm. But the crazy thing is, because that is a first come, first serve, if you did it 364 days ago and didn't bill for it, if you, Alex, did it on the 363rd day and did submit it, you will get credit for it and not right. the guy who did it last year because, hey, listen, sorry, you didn't fill out your 
you know, so you first to bill, not first to do. First to bill. Yeah. And that's the same. And that applies also with um, chronic care management codes right. and um, RPM codes. So right. if you get to the table first, you win. Because only one provider can bill for certain stuff. So again, back to the the information that you can right. pull out of Medicare, it's you know it's the uh, preventive medicine, uh, the preventive codes as well. Um, so just to be clear, um, you don't need to enroll in the private payers to get payment for secondary insurance as long as there's the benefits are coordinated. But correct. you do need to enroll in the private payers if you want to be reimbursed for Medicare Advantage their Met MA plans. Most of the time, there are some weird situations like I think Cigna PPO, I think if you call them, you don't have to enroll, but like you can get advanced, you can get permission to see their mm -hmm. patients for X amount of time, but that's just... Yeah, no, I want it things to be even, it's The friction yeah. is too great to... And, and the risk is too high. Like you almost have to be like, I'll try one and I'll see if I get paid. Yeah. And if I don't, but you, then now you've established a patient, you know, physician relationship with that right. person. And then you, then that's just sort of feels terrible. You have to go back and be like, guess what? Sorry, your insurance stinks for what we're trying to accomplish. Maybe it's awesome for other stuff, but you know, that's why you got to kind of keep this stuff very clean. If yeah. you don't want to have a massive entourage that surrounds you, Right. You really can't do that. Yeah. It's it makes you have to create a box and say I'm sorry to lots of people. But luckily yeah. we live in a state where the utilization of Medicare, I mean, in our state, but that doesn't right. matter because you're going to be doing this in a lot of places. But the 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 in Maryland, it's only like 10% of people have Medicare Advantage. So you right. kind of are like, ooh, you know, if you had to roll the dice and advertise, you know that your hit rate's going to be pretty high. Like every person who comes to you is pretty much going to be a successful client slash patient right. from an insurance perspective. Right. So, yeah. Awesome. So you're going to have to have that that third party that reaches into the Medicare system and, and pulls it out. And I, and I know that Medicare probably has it on a patient-by-patient -patient basis, but I'm, I'm kind of a fan of some of these third-party stuff because they – they present it in a way that looks really nice and it's easy to understand. And but there's lots of right. different ways to do that. And it's not it's not as complicated as other things. Right. Awesome. Uh, let's move on to employees. This is this, <laughs> this is, is against everything we wanted. <laughs> well, not office employees, but yeah. clinical employees. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, any sort of employee is going to create uh headache and whatever. But um, for me, from the perspective of being able to scale anything I do, uh, I, I don't want this business to 100% rely on me uh, staffing every visit, right? So I, I have to have some clinical employees to help see some of the visits. Um, so so first of all, what, what I didn't realize going into this was that physician employee slash partners um, would jack up the med mal rate extremely high relative to the employees being just by uh, factors of 10 and by yeah. 10, one, 10 to the two it's 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 kind of crazy uh crazy. so so just because of that issue i decided i'm not going to employ any other physicians it's just going to be here to fall from my face i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> just uh pas and nps so npps or apps um and um, 
so th that was an interesting point. And then, the, you know, then there's a discussion of should it be only NPs, only PAs, a mix? Uh, so, Amy, you've employed NPs and PAs in the past. So talk to yeah. us about this issue. So I think, you know, it's funny because when I first started my practice, um, I, as an emergency physician, really at the time that I was starting the practice, nurse practitioners were not a part of emergency medicine. I mean, I think they are much more commonly now. This is 10 years later. So I was really familiar with how PAs practice medicine, how, you know, sort of how they were trained, how they interfaced with me, how they would interface with me. And I was really comfortable with that. Um, in the state of Maryland, you can only attach yourself to four PAs. Um, but the important thing was, is that there was a very clear line of, uh, like, I had to create a delegation agreement, which meant that I would say, I this person is sort of operating under my licensure. I am allowing for them under my, not license, that sounds wrong, but under my, I guess maybe it is my license. I am delegating to them certain powers that they can do in the state of Maryland right. on behalf of me, but they're their own NPI number. So, I mean, they, they can, I think in some theories get sued separately, but really if they get sued, I get sued. Right. Um, and it was just very clear to me sort of how they how they interfaced with me. Um, it's not an independent relationship. It is something that, you know, you want to make sure that you have a, if you ever kind of got yourself into a pickle, you would have to say, well, yeah, I mean, I, I am in constant contact with them. They know how to get me. Um, if I ever go out of town, there is an alternate physician or I take all my calls no matter what. I mean, it's a 24 yeah. seven con, you have to be sort of available to them. Right or at least clearly delineate how they will get in touch with you. So talk to me about what you need in terms of, do you need like a collaboration agreement? Yeah, it's called a delegation agreement in the state of Maryland and okay. it, it, forms are available on the Board of Physicians website. Oh, so it's a standard thing. You don't Very need to- Very standard. Okay. Yeah, and you basically have to, you, you, you basically say, these are the tasks that this person can do. Mm -hmm. You know, and that includes writing um, for narcotics. But we actually had, I, I think, a step backwards in Maryland where I think now your name might need to be on any narcotic scripts. I know we're not always going to be sort of focused right. on that, but like there are like little weird limitations, but they can write for narcotics. So wait, so this sort of delegation agreement, that would be required for regardless of NP or PA? No, it's only oh. for PAs. It oh, only for PAs. Maryland NPs have com very independent they exist in the same capacity as a physician. I mean, they can start their own practices and and operate very independently without any delegation agreement. Even, so oh. even if the NP works underneath my umbrella organization, I don't need a delegation agreement? You do not. No. Correct. Okay. They used to need to have some sort of relationship with somebody. I don't think that exists anymore. I mean, I think they literally right. are kind of like independent providers with like no strings attached and they can pretty much do everything that MDs and, uh, and DOs do. Um, and so from that perspective, they are really just operating at like kind of doing their own thing. There's really no ties back to the doc. Yeah. Can I share with you my, my first experience with the PA? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was in residency in Philly at, at Jefferson and I was an intern and I'd be on shift. Right. <laughs> and this more kind of mature woman, you know, I'm, I'm on, so how old am I? I'm 20 nine, I guess, in my first year of residency. And this, kind of, this, yeah, this more mature woman, probably in her 40s, would walk up to me and uh, she'd have like a pile of charts, like 
20 charts in her hand and say, here, sign these. And, <laughs> and I would sign them because she did it with such confidence. I was like, okay, okay fine. I think about like three months into it, I go to my chairman and say, who is this woman who keeps coming up to me and telling <laughs> me to sign charts? Who, who is this? And he's like, oh, that, that's our physician assistant. And she runs the fast track or whatever. He's like, you're not even reviewing the charts? I was like, no, I, she I had- I have no idea. That's all right. Um, They're all guilty of that unfortunate situation. And then, so, but we never actually worked together. Uh, so I never really interacted with a PA. And then I started at Prince William Hospital as a, uh, you know, when I graduated residency as an attending. And my very first interaction with a PA was uh, Jackie Kanka, one of these uh, no BS, uh, hilarious you know, a uh, very smart, awesome PA. She walks up to me and uh, she, something to the effect of like, who the hell are you? Uh, sign my chart. <laughs> and I was like, who are you? She's like, well, I, I'm the PA. I was like, what's a PA? What does a PA even do? I, I really had no idea. None. It's really hard to get into PA school, by the way. So yeah. hard. And it's gotten harder. They have to have like years of experience. It's actually harder. Hours of experience. Do you understand? Most of the PAs are actually smarter than I ever was when I, I mean, the idea that I got into medical school with like, I know how to like do a science experiment. Like, I don't even know, like, it just none of it makes sense. Without a doubt, some of our PAs were better than some of our docs. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Easy. Badass. Yeah. Many of them super duper badass and in yeah. the emergency department. And now they're 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 in all parts of medicine. I mean, they're practicing very independently, you know, as the second in command for a lot of surgeons and subspecialists and specialists. Yeah. And I mean, I think from that perspective, I mean, PAs have a totally different way of of getting trained and of being trained. I mean, even though from a Medicare perspective, you're going to get paid 85% on the 80%, and they're also going to get 85% on the secondary payment. Right. They're paid the same. They kind of, kind of, in many states, have the same like scope of practice allowances. It turns out that they are not, they are not, they, they don't necessarily all have the same knowledge base. They don't have the same skill set or the same attitude. Yeah. I mean, things I actually know just because we're ER docs, but. You know, PAs who have been trained, many of them have had to go through the emergency room. And I think there's like a real penchant for emergency medicine style people in the yeah. world. Nurse practitioners are much more likely to be like, you know, nurses. You know, they come yeah. across from a nurse perspective, which is a very um, global view of the patient. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, you and I probably go in a little bit more like, okay, what's your disposition before you ever even see the patient? You're like, we got to. Right. Just figure out what the end of the story is like yeah in between is sort of like oh really that's very fascinating because i know i'm going to do an ultrasound a ct scan and all these yeah. other things on you and then you're going to leave but i need yeah. to do all of those things the nurse practitioner is a is often much more of a listener um that there's exceptions to every rule um but you know we it is a different way of of doing yeah. stuff from the purposes of a business owner you have to say to yourself how independent do i want my my employees to be yeah and i mean obviously we haven't really talked about 1099 or w2 or any of that stuff and we are not either accountants or lawyers so we can't say anything but you have to say to yourself you know i, I am what is that relationship are they doing work at their own speed or am i giving them the work to do and so right. i mean i over the years um 
through lots of conferences and stuff, did transfer all of my employees from contractors to W-2s because I felt like that was a more real company feel. Sure. Um, and then I felt like they were really my employees. Yeah. Um, but I... Well, it depends on the model, right? It depends um, on your so, model, yeah. Yeah, like if, if my folks can set their own hours and whatever, then whatever. maybe keep them to 99. Correct. You have a whole different way of looking at it, and then you have to look through that. Whatever so your talk, state... Yeah. yeah, so talk to me about ratios. In terms of patient ratios? No, in, in terms of how many PAs slash NPs, what if they're part-time? What if I have a certain number in Maryland? Can Does the ratio still apply to a different state like Virginia? No, or, no. you yeah, can so, have four, four, four. I mean, you, it depends on the, the location. I, I'm pretty sure D.C. allows for four and Maryland allows for four. So if I have four PAs who are completely focused just on Maryland, then I could have four different PAs who are focused just on Virginia. Is that right? I don't know what the rules are in Virginia in terms of the ratio. Yeah, but, but it's, let's assume it's, it's four same. to one. Yeah, no, I mean, you've got a medical license in Virginia, you can do whatever you're doing in Virginia. And in DC, in DC now, every one of those locations actually delineates the type of relationship and how you're supposed to maintain that relationship as an example. Um, my recollection is that in the state, in um, the District of Columbia, you have to do a quarterly review mm -hmm. with every PA and have documented that quarterly review. Right. Like every quarter you have to sit down with your PA and say, hey, let's go through your patients. You know, how are you, you know, right. evaluate their performance. Right. in some way or maintain your relationship with them in some way. Um, so you have to sort of figure out each state how that goes. Right. Um, but in nurse practitioners, just to say, like, you don't have to do a lot of that. Hmm. It's right. less it's less friction. It's a different right. style. But like you, you know, I probably I started off uh, one, two, three. Uh, when I started my practice, I had three PAs and no NPs. I didn't hire an NP until I um, came on with um, EMA. Mm -hmm. What about, um, talk to me about how you used to pay your NPPs. So when I first started, I mean, I couldn't, you know, when you first started practice, you can't say, hey, listen, I'm going to pay you no matter what, you know, listen, we have no patience. I'm still going to pay you. So it yeah. was eat what you kill mentality. And I was paying people about 50% approximately of what I thought I would collect from that patient based on the Medicare collection. So 80% mm -hmm. is what Medicare was going to pay of the Medicare allowable. And then 85% of that, because they were a non-physician provider, so I would give them 50% of that 0.8 times 0.85, which is what 0.6 something, whatever, 60% right. So I paid them 50% of the 60% of the 100% Medicare allowable. Follow that, people. So, yeah. you know, it's it it ended up being, you know, let's just say, you know, 45, 50 bucks per encounter, depending upon the, the code that I used. Right. But you know, you have to figure out, are you doing office-based codes, house call codes, whatever codes right. you're doing, you have to figure out what is appealing to that person because Medicare has basically said for a physician at 100% of the Medicare level, assuming you get your full Medicare and your full secondary, it's about 100 bucks take-home pay per hour after you pay 50% overhead. Right. And so 
if you say, well, maybe NPs and PAs make half of that, which in this day and age, actually, they're making like way more than that. Right. You may be paying like 60 bucks per hour. I mean, you have to think about how you want to do it. I mean, I think the per encounter payment methodology is so much better. Yeah. The problem is, is that you can't pay people based on what you collect because that's not how rev that's right. not that's not how cash flow works. Right. You know, if you're a provider, you're like, well, I did this work last week. I want to pay, be paid next week. Right. You can't wait to see. But from historical data, you do on the Medicare side, if you don't screw it up on the intake side and bring somebody in that's never going to pay slash that doesn't really have the Medicare you accept, you can pretty much predict that you're going to get that 80%. And then you can leave that secondary payment maybe for like a bonus or something like that if they do a really good job because you're going to be collecting, you know, 85% on that 20%. Right. Um, so you could leave that as like, you know, bonuses and, you know, other cool stuff that you want to get, you know, swag. I don't know right. like what you want to give them. You can how, like, if you have a clean swag. claim, if you have a clean claim, how fast does Medicare typically 14 pay? 14 days. Uh, just That's continuously 14. running? Or is it like on Fridays or? No, it's continuously running. Continuous. So how does it work? Like all of a sudden. That, you can batch it. I don't know how your RCM is going to work through Athena. Maybe they batch it. But the perfect scenario. And by the way, there are some amazing. And I have to figure out who has this. That if you send a claim in. That the secondary gets hit. I think. I don't know when the secondary gets hit after the 14 days. Um, but that it that it could actually cycle back to your EMR and then EMR, if given permission, can text the patient if they have a, oh, really? uh, uh, like, if patient there's a responsibility. Delta, patient responsibility, yeah, whatever right. you want to call that. And that they can pay through, a, like, a, a they get a text message that says, you owe $4.82, click here, and it could literally go through Apple Pay. How well, yeah, we, well, the company simply S-I-M-P-L-E-E, -E, I remember. I remember that. We would do that sort of thing on the emergency medicine and hospital side. So, yeah, um, but okay, yeah. So what about, um, so all of a sudden you see a thousand dollars been deposited. How do you know which claims My God. are being yeah. paid? So if your RCM system's good, it will figure it out, right? Like it'll it'll actually say, okay, here's the, yeah. the rows, and then it'll it'll do it to this. But the EOB, it it has to know the smart EOBs will hook up. Yeah. But there's always going to be a time, especially at the beginning, where your secondary payers are going to send you a check. Oh, mail. So your EFTs for the secondary payers until you get that revenue cycle all figured out. Wait, wait, how, so how does, how do you get that <laughs> set up? So here's how it's gonna go. You're gonna see your first patient and you're gonna put a CPT code in your ICD-9 codes yeah. and you're gonna send it off, okay? ICD-10. What'd you say? ICD-10, not nine. Oh my God, ICD-10, yeah. thanks. <laughs> yeah. well, sorry. sorry. Um, so your IC you could put ICD-9 codes and see what happens. That would right. bounce back. So um, you're going to send it off with your CBT and ICD-10 codes, and, and you're going to get 14 days later your account that you set up with Medicare, you are going to get the 80%. And then they're going to send that off to the secondary payer, and the secondary payer is going to be like, oh, great. Well, we pay you know 100% of the secondary or 50% of the secondary, and to be quite honest with you, be careful because with some non-physician providers, they pay a lower percentage because oh. they're like, oh, we don't, 
right? So the patient responsibility could change based on the person that's doing it for the secondary side. But let's just pretend whatever the secondary right. payer is going to, you know, decide to pay a certain amount of that secondary payment. And they're going to say, well, where we don't, where do we send it? Like, we don't know, like you're a new provider, you're like somebody yeah. new. And so like, you're going to get a paper check. So it doesn't go to the Mac and come from the Mac through. No, you're going to get, you're going to literally get checks directly from the private insurers. Oh, that's it, painful. So what you have to do, oh, sorry. What you have to do over time is on an, on an ongoing basis, as you figure out who your patients have secondary insurance policies yeah. with, you then have to contact those individual insurance companies and be like, oh, can you send me your EFT form and set up your electronic fund transfer form for those individual secondary payers? Oh, so then how does the, you know, Athena, or, uh, you know, or the revenue cycle company even know whether the secondary paid or not? Somebody has to go back and reconcile everything. Unless there's a different system in place, but that is the way experientially oh, I have had to go through that. And, and that is why there's little worker bees sometimes in some of these offices is to literally be like link, link, link the EOB oh. of the secondary payments. It's And sometimes you just go, you know, you don't even, because, yeah. because by law you have to balance bill people. You almost have to do that. Yeah. But there may be a way where you could OCR it and figure out how to grab the patients because yeah. they aggregate, right? Like sometimes you'll get a check for $2,000, right? From a secondary payer. Yeah. And, and then they individ and, and it's a thick mail packet yeah. and you could scan them all in maybe and like oh, pull relevant data. Okay, whatever, You're that's your thing, well, man. <laughs> I, I shouldn't be complaining, right? You're getting, you're getting paid. Kidding, that sucks. <laughs> I just hate inefficiency, right? I know. But um, it, that's, that is one of those things because I, I don't know if you can even set up an EFT in advance if you've never even had a right. team. You can't be like, hi, I'm NPI number this and that with this business. Can you set up an EFT? They're like, who the hell are you? No. Right. You almost have to wait until you have a claim that comes through and gets paid to you. And then I think you can go back through. So it's, think of it like this. It's a, I think it's a one-time hit per secondary and most yeah. people have kind of the same 10. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was, um, I was looking up on the CMS website, like, Hey, what, what is the reimbursement for this code in our region? Right. Cause it's all regional. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you look it up on that website, uh, yeah. on the CMS. The one that you can never remember the name of. Yeah, CMS, CPT website, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> and I just wanted to share that, like, I finally figured it out um, because there isn't a column that says, you know, physician reimbursement. It, right. it, instead, I think it says non-facility. Non non-facility but yeah. that's like such bs right like that's like going to a hamburger place and the hamburger is labeled not hot dog like just say it's a hamburger <laughs> why are you saying it's not a hot dog I mean, it could be any just number of other things I, well that's the semantics of this i mean there's just it's we're like fraught with dumb acronyms and yeah. impossible to enter and and people speak in tongue it's it's nuts it, th this whole thing is so much more difficult to figure out well, and it's, it's always it one thing. It's one common theme, which is whoever's putting this 
garbage out is no not thinking experience. about the user experience. And give an ass about the user experience. Yeah. Not care. Correct. And then, and then you would think that maybe if you could hover or click the title of the column, it would explain <laughs> what it is. But of course not. No, you have to find some obscure PDF that explains what all these column headers mean. Come on, man. Well, like, also, what is this? the funny thing about it is that if you go to the CMS, CPT, whatever that, that thing yeah. is, you would think that you could just click on it and get a great explanation of right. what is that code? Where are the place of services that you can provide this code? All that stuff. It's, it's like, I don't even know where it is. You have to, it, it's yeah. too much digging to get the information. And all people want to do is be a doctor. Yeah. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. I will be the technician that you always yeah. call me. Right. Like doctors are not like the scientists that are solving the world's problems. We're like technicians for a set of algorithmic yeah. rules about how to treat different diseases. Like, you know, aside from the art of medicine, whatever, just tell us what it is going to take to yeah. build code this CPT code. Yeah. And just then tell me. just freaking and, tell me and I'll do that. Like, exactly. I want to be able to follow the rules. Right. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> because like, now we walk around going, oh, no, is the speed limit 60 or 45? Am I going to get it? Yeah. So we, instead you, you know, go to like, like just for me to learn the remote patient monitoring codes, I had to read probably 100 hours least, worth of stuff. Yeah, 40 or 50 articles from different law firms who have tried to interpret the Medicare, the thousand page, you know, discussion thing that they publish where they have all their commentary and all that stuff. Right. Just do what you said, Just put the rules in order to build this code. You must do the 10 following things. It's period. Really crazy. And, and it's not simple. So that takes me back to our first podcast that we ever did, which is just literally like, this is part A, this is part B, this is part D. And, and, and seriously, the feedback that we've gotten on that is like, we've never heard anybody aggregate it like that together. We've never, right. like, because it's not, it, there's no place that just says, this is what part A is from an outsider's right. perspective. It's only like when you get, when you sort of like find yourself in the middle of it, I don't, I don't even know that billers and coders understand some of this stuff. Yeah. They just understand their little teeny tiny square, right. but the big picture gets lost. And for us, as as people who may want to start a practice, you can't, it, it, you spend the whole time wondering if you're going to go to OIG jail, you know, because yeah. you Medicare didn't. jail. Um, or, or or the grab back or the I did all this work right. and I accidentally did not know. I mean, there's no intentionality. Right. So like right. there's some like that's why there's these things called cert audits, which they just kind of pin you. Send me one chart, send me one chart. And you're going to get those yeah. as soon as you hit a certain level. You're going to get from Medicare. Oh, you said you did this. Send me your chart note. Yeah. And then somebody is going to make sure that you documented A, B, C and D. Yeah. Um, and, and that. If you don't respond to those, that seems to be like the big trigger for like a bigger kind of sure. audit. But if you respond to those, I mean, they kind of say, oh, well, you should have done this, this and that. I don't usually think they do a major pullback from that. But, you know, that's Clawback, the fear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, clawback. I don't, I don't, I think most people live in fear of screwing it up. Yeah. But Medicare should want more people to participate, make it clear to understand what the rules of the road are. Yeah. It's, it's, it is yeah. weird, but yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, so let's just, can we do an Alex summary? We've got a business, an LLC, we've got an NPI number, a Medicare number, we've got your MedMal insurance, you've got a choice of an EMR, a choice of your telemed, you've got a choice of how you're gonna look people up to make sure that they have the right insurance. Yeah. You have, what else did we talk about? 
We talked about, um, you know, how to look up how much you're going to charge for each different code. But how do you decide if you're seeing the patient in their home? I think this is what we were talking about is yeah. now you're doing telemed. How do you decide if this is a office-based code or is right. this a house call code? Because you're seeing the or patient. Or an urgent care code. Or a which code? Or an urgent care code. Or an urgent care code. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I think there's. Because we're we're going to be kind of focused on this kind of minor urgent care slash basic primary care space. Right, 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 right. Uh, but but you're going to want to bring in some primary care services that they yeah. may, may not have been getting from their other right. doctor. You know, even if that other doctor is well intentioned, of course, because of the complexification of everything, they're yeah. not getting some of their you know preventive medicine stuff. Yeah. How do you know? I think there's going to be a lot of trial and error, to be straight yeah. honest with you. I think you're going to throw out a bunch of CPT codes and say, I did all this stuff. Yeah. See if Medicare pays you, and that's it. It's like test coding. I yeah. think you have to test code a lot of stuff. Well, we settled on the idea that well, we'll start with the office-based codes. That yeah, seems like the, the safest place. That makes to, sense. Yeah. It does make sense. I Unless do want to say patient. Yeah. Unless the bed-bound patient, which meets homebound criteria, I think you could then use a house call code in the current kind of emergency use. Yeah, exactly. uh, right. um, I do want to say that although we're criticizing CMS for that CPT lookup page, it's at actually least, well, at least it exists, right? Uh, like you can't go on care first right now and look up whether they reimburse remote patient monitoring. Not only that, but in my current sort of world that I'm in, um, there's a lot of questions about does care first pay for advanced care planning. And I have no idea how I'm going to do that. Isn't that no crazy? Idea. They're the, the biggest payer in our area. Things. Yeah, right. I the biggest payer in our area, they have uh, what, one or two million members here. Uh, uh, the year is 2020 and we can't look up whether this mega payer reimburses a certain common code. Like what? Get your act together. Either. I, I, well, although Medicaid might be a little easier to look up, but still, you know, there's always a caveat. Like you maybe even like, even if they did have it, you know that there's going to be some hidden small yeah. print somewhere that goes, oh, except for. <laughs> yeah. Now, and I'll tell you this, I found out Care First does not reimburse for remote patient monitoring, but not because I was able to look it up, but I have a friend who called the CMO and that was the only way to find out. Like what? Wait, this is so as a, if you have Care First as a primary, yeah. not Medicare, so you care yeah. It will not pay for RPM. Remote patient monitoring. Nope. That's my. That's that's what I am told. That's what I am told. So I they have their have... own. They have their own remote patient monitoring program. So Care First. I, what I've read is they chose some vendor. So they're so they're, they're using some vendor to do it on their own for like post discharge high risk patients. They're just doing yeah. it totally at risk. But if you as a primary care doctor want to do that with the rules with the CPT codes for you know that have been established by Medicare, even though a lot of the private payers typically mimic what Medicare does in this specific situation. Right. Count on nothing. Count yeah. on nothing. Right. No, that old adage of like, well, if Medicare does it, I'm sure the secondary, the uh, private payers will follow. Not, Not necessarily. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for all of your help in this kind of uh, initial phase. And uh, we're going to we're going to share stories as I try Literally, to go. Like every day is going to be a new adventure. Yeah. We kind all of right. Do this and build this practice from scratch. Scratch. All right. Bye. All right. Alex. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources.